I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello. I'm Joe. I'm the events manager here at PT Knitwear. And on behalf of all the staff, we are very pleased to welcome you here tonight to help celebrate the release of Kazaya Ware's debut novel, The Mythmakers. And we are equally excited to have Maris Kreisman, host of the Maris Review and author of I Want to Burn This Place Down, which is forthcoming from Echo, here to be Kazaya's interlocutor. I'm glad you are here to help us celebrate this book. If you have not heard anything about this book, if you're not sure what it is about. The Mythmakers is a nesting doll of book that grapples with perspective and memory, as well as the battles between creative ambition and love. A book that asks the question, who owns a story? Keziah Weir's writing has appeared in the New York Times, Elle, Esquire, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She grew up in California and British Columbia, and currently lives in Maine with her husband and dog. It is a pleasure to have both Kazaya and Maris here. Please help me welcome Kazaya Weir and Maris Kresman. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I think we should tell everyone here how we met first, because it is very relevant to what you do in this book our book lunch circuit? Yes. Um, yes, so years ago when I was a baby editorial assistant and I was starting to go to book lunches, which are just, you know, lunches to promote forthcoming novels, I started seeing Maris on the circuit and it was sort of a nerve-wracking place to be because it's a lot of older, very serious editors and I felt very out of place, but Maris was always like a really wonderful, welcoming figure. And so we started chatting and then became pals over the years and would see each other there and now have not seen each other for several years yes. <laughs> due to COVID and moving. So it's very nice to be reunited. It's so lovely to be reunited. And I, I think it's just so interesting that you are now 
on the other side of the process. And we'll want to hear about that. And also kind of hear about Sal, who is thinking about a lot of the things that we would be thinking about at lunch if we had gotten over our nerves. Like, what makes an author someone you want to write about or profile? And what makes a good story? And what makes people want to read about specific authors? Yeah, which is such a, you know, like the building of literary persona is so interesting and has evolved and changed over the years. And as somebody who has read books for a long time and been interested in authors for a long time, that that was sort of an interesting starting point. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the inspiration for the idea of Sal finding herself in a story. There are some real-life circumstances I can think of, and I'm curious what, what you were thinking about. Well, there are some things that, you know, when you are around writers who are writing and when you are young and in maybe undergraduate circumstances and you start seeing yourself in other people's work, that's sort of an interesting thing that's maybe not always true. Maybe sometimes it is. But then just as I started interviewing authors for my magazine jobs, people just always say that no matter who the character is or you know what they are like, the people in their lives believe that they are about them. And, and then there are, of course, a lot of authors who have very much made a whole career of writing about themselves and the people around them to various effect. So, Kaziah, looking at the audience... <laughs> yes, I see all my characters here today. <laughs> And I also love that you're very aware of, and Sal is very aware of some of the conversations that come up or around such things, because there, I, I think it was on page 146, um, I got to the part where Moira asks Martin, well, do you think we're like the couple in The Wife, Meg Wolitzer's novel? And I was like, oh, see, they're already there. Yeah. We're already contemplating like what, what would happen if, spoiler alert, this doesn't happen in this book, the, the wife was actually the one who was doing the writing. Yeah, and, and I think one of, you know, one of the fun things about writing after a lot of people have written other books uh, is that you get to be in conversation with those other books. And there were so many novels that I was thinking about when I was writing this. For a long time, I was thinking about a lot of novels written by like the great literary men. And I started writing this when I was 22. And so I was very taken with Philip Roth and Nabokov and still am, but you know, my sort of understanding of the literary landscape shifted as I was writing this book. And so that was sort of like an interesting, it's like a bit of a living document in that it it sort of grew up with my my understanding of writing and who got to be a writer and what like a great writer is. Absolutely, and I do think like if you're thinking about great literary men of the 20th century, like so their their wives are a part of their myth. Yeah. Yes, their wives or 
you know, girlfriends, girlfriends or... or mistresses or whatever. And so that that was also really interesting as well as just to think about. So in in the book, there's a writer named Martin who sort of like sees himself as a contemporary of like Roth and Update Dyke and Martin Amos and like that sort of sphere, but doesn't ever really get to that level. He sort of like has a debut hit and then has a challenging second and third publication process. And so that was interesting too, you know, not writing about like a great author, but maybe, you know, seeing what it looks like to fail in certain ways, even if, you know, three book careers are great, that's more than a zero book career. <laughs> but uh, to Martin, it felt like failure. And uh, so it, it was interesting to, to work. Well, if that. he and Norman Mailer hadn't shared a pub date, his life might have been different. Yes, that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the origin story of his discontent. <laughs> I also really love what you have to say about his writing style or lack thereof and his, his process uh, versus that of his wife, who is also a writer, but she happens to be a little bit more successful, maybe. Yeah, so his, write, his wife is a physicist, but then also ends up writing sort of like, not like pop sci, basically, and is very diligent about her writing career. And Martin is more sort of waiting for the muse to strike and needs the circumstances to be perfect. And uh, that came from, you know, internal issues with wanting circumstances to be perfect and thinking like, well, if only I, you know, had a little cabin in the woods, or if only I had, you know, if there were no other extraneous things, then then I would be able to write this book. And then as you write, you realize you just actually have to sit down and write. And it doesn't matter where you're doing it. And each of the characters, I think, has like a little splinter of, um, you know, various pieces of angst and anxiety about work uh, and various forms of creativity. Yes. I, I'm wondering if... Um, I don't want to ask you about your personal process... <laughs> but maybe I will. Yeah, in the beginning of writing this, the process was no process, and it was, um, you know, not really understanding why a book was not just sort of magically coming together, and it was only once I started just sort of treating it like a job of just, like, I have to get a certain number of words on the page every day, you know, until it's done, and then to have something to work with was much easier for me than... I think some writers do sort of go sentence by sentence and sort of build, you know, have each sentence perfect and move on to the next, and that ended up not working for me. So, so I just had to sort of like splat it all out and then and then work from there. And I think that's also another thing about like romanticizing past great literary men. Like they had their office and their space and their time and their women to bring them treats and. Um, and it, it's really kind of illuminating to see just other people just sitting down and doing the work. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that it was helpful to, you know, I was working at Elle magazine and I was interviewing a lot of women writers who, you know, some of them had children and some of them had full-time jobs and just realizing that it is just work and just carving out an hour at a time and and not having Vera Nabokov driving you from place to place and, you know, like carrying your wallet because you're so brilliant that your head is elsewhere. 
And, and I do think there, that's also, I think, something we talk about in our culture now that, that we realize perhaps was a mistake is, is venerating the tortured artist. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading brief interviews with Hideous Men right now, which I hadn't read in a decade and is a great book. There's so much in it, but, but it is really interesting thinking about the brain that it came out of and the person, you know, who was, who was this tortured artist and treated people poorly. And yeah, a lot of interesting conversations there. And it's funny that you bring David Foster Wallace up because another part of the book that I find really fascinating and have seen some discourse about is, is about the question of publishing posthumously. Like, if an author has died, what, what happens to the work? Yeah, which is so, I mean, you know, there are authors who have said that, you know, their work should be burned when they die, or their unfinished work should should be burned, and, and oftentimes their estate decides that it is more lucrative not to burn the work and instead to publish it, and sometimes it's quite bad. And uh, so in this, in this book, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, Martin dies, and then, then there's this unfinished unpublished manuscript floating around and there are various plans for it. And I think that's so interesting because then that means that the people around him have to kind of guess at his intentions. And that seems to be something that many of your characters in this in this book are constantly doing. Guessing each other's intentions. Yeah, and I think that's something that we do as people and as a magazine writer who is profiling other people, that is something that I have thought about a lot. And when you profile someone, you can, you know, do all your due diligence and work as hard as you can to, you know, think that you're getting this person right. Um, and then you can get an email from them saying, actually, like, it's, this is quite upsetting for me because I think I made it quite clear that I was a towhead blonde as a child. And you described my hair as, you know, whatever. And so, like, you don't ever know how some, you know, how you're reading somebody or how you are being read. And I think all we can do as people is sort of, like, listen to them and then project or empathize or imagine. But that sometimes hits a limit. And, and you illustrate that very lovely with Sal profiling a playwright and perhaps not taking as much care as she might have. Yes, and unfortunately, while she is not taking great care, she's also speaking to a compulsive liar. And no matter who you're talking to, like people do lie when they know that their story is going to be out in the world and they do it on different levels. I had the exciting experience of profiling a writer for a newspaper and then it was like a short profile. I spent a couple hours with him and a year later the New Yorker did quite a large expose on how he had had a trail of, of deceit and naughtiness throughout his life um, and career and uh, it was a you know, just one of those moments where you, like, I, I thought I had sort of an understanding of this person, and then, and then you see, you know, all the things that you've missed. Yeah, and, and 
you also make clear like how alluring it is to have a story to tell that makes sense and that you can put together in, in a way that adds up narratively. Yeah, and that's something I think that you just always have to be careful of when you are writing a story, but also I think just like moving through the world, it's so easy to have preconceptions and then to sort of add up, you know, like sort of make a case for that. And I think you often close off doors and um, avenues of maybe getting to an actual version of truth if you're doing that. But it's hard. You have to like really listen and really, you know, that's that's sort of a tricky thing to do sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and so I like how in the book we start with Sal's point of view and it's first person and close. But then the book kind of opens up and we, we get chapters from Martin and Moira and their daughter Caroline and a couple of other people. And I'm wondering how reliable those narrations are meant to be because in, in Sal's research, we, we understand that the people she's talking to aren't always forthcoming. But the reader has to also then evaluate that situation with Sal. Yeah, I think that most narrators are unreliable. You know, I don't know what a version of a reliable narrator would be unless we have, I mean, like, I think we've all learned that AI is not a reliable narrator in the last few months. And so, so I, yeah, I don't think that a reliable narrator exists. Um, and, uh, but that, you know, there are different grades of that. I think that people in the book and in the world purposefully obscure some things, but then also memory is just such an odd thing. And, and, you know, you can have a real sense of something having happened a certain way. And then you talk to somebody else who experienced it in, you know, in a very different way. And that's sort of like a disconcerting, but also just very interesting point of uh, divergence to work with in a in a book. And I think, you know, the point isn't ever to like trick the reader, but just to, um, you know, to, sh to show a more full version of, of an experience. Yeah, and another thing I loved about the book is that even as we're thinking through ideas about authorship and authenticity, we also get into some, some really different topics. We get into astronomy and physics. And again, Moira writes pop journalism, so she's able to explain all of these complex concepts in a, in a way that makes it easier to understand. But I'm, I was fascinated by Martin's take. Who, like He always then wants to take the scientific stuff and apply it to literature and use metaphors from his wife's business. And I love books like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I do too. And that's, you know, I started writing this book in 2014 and I, I have always been really interested in like the ways that one can map scientific processes into like metaphor. Um, but I did marry a scientist who sometimes pushed back on uh, on doing that. And so, you know, 
there there was already this relationship in the book and I think it just broadened because of my own new understanding of how different brains work. And that's something that I love just about, like that's what I love about reading is like getting to exist in these different consciousnesses. And so so it was, it was fun to have people with very different understandings of, uh, ba basically, um, yes, Martin is always wanting to like make these grand metaphors about, uh, you know, take, take properties of, of physics and, you know, apply them to relationships or, you know, and um, his wife Moira is like, you actually can't say that people are like particles because they aren't. And let me explain to you why. And he's like, but it doesn't matter, you know, because like people are so also aren't like trees, but we can, you know, describe them in a, in a beautiful metaphor. So having people with different interests and expertises and letting them bicker was fun. And then, of course, you get to do that again with Martin's daughter, Caroline, who loves music. And you capture the, the feeling of elation that she feels when, when a piece of music particularly moves her. And that also, of course, feels like literature. Yeah, and, and I, yeah, so Caroline does not love to read. Martin just doesn't understand music and doesn't like music. And that was actually, I was reading a Nabokov biography and his son was an opera singer and he just couldn't, like, he really couldn't stand music, kind of. It just didn't process for him in a, in a, way that was like it didn't see it wasn't musical to him and I I just was so interested in the idea and my parents are both classical musicians um, like luckily I don't hate music I also I listened to the Bach cello suites like on repeat while writing this book but the idea of having a family member who you love who you just on a pretty fundamental level don't understand um, was you know, was something fun to to work with I also find it interesting that Caroline and her father have so many differences, but their working styles seem very similar. In what way? That Caroline feels tortured before this big audition that she's going on. Yes, and they and and yeah, I, I think one of the things that I was working with in the book was um, just the idea of failure on different levels and um, and Caroline in a certain way is a failed musician. She had wanted to be a pianist, you know, playing with a symphony and she doesn't end up doing that, but she ends up doing something else that becomes very meaningful to her. And I think uh, the tricky thing for Martin is that he doesn't ever find that other, other thing. thing. He just wants to do the one thing and it doesn't line up the way he wants it to. And the two of them were very fun to, to write together. And I love that Caroline especially is, is wary of, of journalists and she doesn't trust Sal from the beginning. And I was wondering about that impulse and then, of course, we have Sal say, I sometimes wonder if writing has to hurt the person it's about, if it's going to be any good. Do you have thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it is something that I wonder because when you are truthful about another person, often 
it can hurt them because we are humans who have all kinds of faults and um, weirdnesses, and to see that on paper is a really jarring thing, I would imagine. Um, and I really can only imagine that from being the person who is doing the, the writing about the person. Um, but Caroline, yes, does not, does not trust Sal and uh, doesn't trust her intentions. And there are different, there are various characters in the book who Sal encounters who are more withholding of themselves. And that I think is an interesting power dynamic because there is a certain sense of power that you have when you are writing about people because you are portraying them and you're the one who is putting their narrative into the world. But then there's also the power that, you know, the subject holds because there are, you know, they, they can lie to you, to the writer, or they can keep things from the writer, and uh, Caroline is keeping herself from Sal. I also, I find it so funny that Martin is constantly worried about people perhaps stealing his ideas. Um, and, and you have a part where Myra is working at NASA as a teen, as, as, as we do. She's sort of doing busy work as like sort of a glorified <laughs> intern. Her parents have needed to send, the, send her away and she has a, a family connection and so she's sort of holed up in an office. And she meets a scientist who says, there's only one winner. Like if, if you're going to discover something new, it doesn't, you can't be in second place. And, and I find that so interesting because constantly, I think, in, in media, we're always told it's not a zero-sum game. You know, many yeah. writers can succeed at one thing all at once and, and yet. Yeah, I, just in, in going back and reading about various scientific discoveries through history, there is always the person whose name is on the thing, and then there were all the other people who were working on it on the at the same time who either had published a paper at like literally the exact same time, but for whatever reason it wasn't, you know, it, it just didn't become kind of part of the, you know, greater canon of, of understanding. Or they're, you know, just like, a few months late or you know they someone got there first and I think there is that feeling when you're working on a story in journalism like you don't want to get scooped and then as someone writing a book you see your ideas that feel so singular coming out in books all the time and uh, you know there were books about astrophysicists that would come out and I'd be like oh, it's my book <laughs> like it's it's over or you know there's a book set in New York and like you know there are all these things that feel um, that that feel like they are you know gonna ruin your chances at uh, at getting the story out and but then of course there are like a thousand different ways to tell really the exact same story if there were you know if you gave one one group of 10 people exactly the same facts they would all come away with it in a different way and that's um that i think is sort of a more interesting way of of thinking about it than just that there can only be one but it, sometimes it's hard when you're in it yeah i think that's the most exciting thing about fiction though that you can hear a similar story told in multiple different ways and it can still feel new and exciting. Yeah, and there, I mean, there are, there are 
really in the last few years, there have been so many great books about people who either have stolen somebody else's story or have had their, you know, there were there was this spate of, like over the course of a year, there were all these people who were writing about having been written about. <laughs> there was, this is like all inside baseball, but you know, like the uh, bad art friend story and uh, the cat person saga. And like, I don't know why that was all sort of springing up right now. Maybe it's something about that we all have so much access to each other because of social media. And so it's like easier to sort of steal people's lives, but also easier to believe that your life has been stolen. But when those books came out, I felt that I had evolved as a person because I did not feel that they had stolen my story. And it feels like they can all exist in the same universe and it's yeah, okay. Yeah, it feels like they're like corroborators almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what other books about artistic creation are inspiring to you? about artistic creation. I mean, so so the books that originally were sort of the ones that sparked this were Philip Roth's Zuckerman novels, which are, you know, about how you write about other people, among other things. And then Nabokov's Panin, which is like another sort of how do you how do you tell a story? But then I started reading books like by Nicole Krauss, who is so you know, write so beautifully about the act of writing while also writing about 10,000 other things. Um, Paul Lafarge was my professor at Bard and he had The Night Ocean, which was just like a beautiful, beautiful book about telling stories and getting things wrong. So there, there are so many books that I was reading and loving and that sort of, you know, I feel like every book has like a vast group of like ghost books behind it. Yeah. And I'm also wondering for perhaps a final question, if there is a book that perhaps is here right now that maybe you see that you can recommend to, to people who might be browsing afterwards? Oh gosh, I mean, this is another one, but Catherine Lacey's new book, Biography of X, is just like one of those books that just completely blew me away. And... Um, and could have been one of those books that came out and was like, oh no, it was my book, but it's not. Uh, but it, it's just so brilliant about a woman trying to write a biography of her, um, her deceased love. And, um, and it's just, it's so smart and so beautiful. Truly really mind-blowing. Yes. As is yours. Thank you. <laughs> Keziah Maris, thank you so much for that conversation. And thank you all for coming out. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>